just the love that we have for you to be in your house today, Lord. We thank you for all the things that you give us. We thank you for Harmony Baptist Church, Lord, and for all the people that are here, Lord, today, and for those that could not be with us today, Lord. Um, we just love you, and we just thank you for Brother Luke and his family, and we just pray that you would uh, please just be with him today as he continues in your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Can you guys hear me now? There we go. Uh, nobody really warns you when you become a parent just how much you're going to deal with your children's bowel movements. Like, don't get me wrong. You know as a parent that when you have a baby that you will be changing diapers. I just don't think you really understand just how much you will be involved in that process, especially early on in their lives. I remember that this was kind of revealed to me when uh, they first bring you the baby. You know, they bring you that chart. And there's the chart where you have to mark down every time they eat, every time they go number one, every time they go number two. And then they ask you to write a little description of it because it's important about how it looks and its consistency and all those wonderful things. I, I knew there was some of that, but I kind of thought once they were potty trained, it wouldn't be an issue anymore. And that's a lie. That's a lie. As long as you have young children, you will be involved in this. Uh, about six months ago, this was before Jake was, was taking care of himself completely, he comes downstairs, it's after nap, and he comes and he sits on my lap. He goes, you know when they're like two or three and they cuddle with you, it's just perfect. They're the perfect size. They, they take up the perfect amount of your body, but they're not bony yet. Like my seven-year-old, when he tries to cuddle with me, it is like daggers with the elbows and the knees just piercing me, right? But three-year-old, beautiful. So he just cozies up to me, and I'm just loving it. I'm just soaking it in because I, I know. I know this time is going to go by so quick. But he's sitting there, and I go, I said, you stink. I said, did you pass gas? And he goes, no. I said, you really stink. I said, Did you, do you need to go potty? And he goes, no, I already went. Well, this was bad because this is the stage where anytime he goes potty, we have to go help. So I said, when, when did you go potty? And he goes, upstairs. And I said, but when? Did we come help you? And he goes, no. And I'm about to just fly off the handle, so I check him, and of course, there is mess everywhere. It's all up in his shorts. It's down his legs. Uh, it's like... I go upstairs, the, the, the disaster, and I'm, and I'm about to get furious, right? And so I go, okay, why didn't you call me? And he goes, because sister was sleeping. If I would have called you, it would have woke her up, and then he would have been upset, so I couldn't call you. Okay, um, 
what did you wipe yourself with? He goes, well, there was no toilet paper. I said, so did you just pull your shorts up? And he goes, no, that's gross. He goes, I used my socks. And I said, oh, no. I said, did you try to flush the socks? And he goes, you don't flush clothes. He goes, I put them in the dirty clothes in my room. <laughs> and it was funny because when I first thought about what he had done, it seemed completely illogical. But as he was walking me through it, I'm like, those are solid decisions. <laughs> I'm with you, son. I see how we got here. You didn't wake up, sister. I'm glad you didn't use anything else to wipe your bottom. You didn't try to flush it. And you showed initiative. So good for you, son. I share that story with you because it's funny how sometimes when you look at something from a certain perspective, it makes no sense. It seems like complete chaos. It seems like there's no logic. It seems like there's no reason. There seems like there's no purpose. But then if you just change your perspective just a little bit and see it from a slightly different angle, you, you may not love the decision, but you start to see that there was some logic behind it. And so as we're talking about the story of Joseph, we reach a point where when you see what's happening to Joseph right now, and you as a believer know that he's not alone in this story, but God's right there with him, there's a point of view that here's what's happening, and you kind of go like, this kind of stinks. This doesn't really seem fair. This doesn't really seem right. This doesn't really seem just. This doesn't really seem good. And if you just put yourself in that one perspective, you're kind of going, I don't really see how there's a loving God here. But the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of this story is as we see more and more of it fall into place, we start to realize that no, even though from certain moments we couldn't see the whole story, when we end up seeing the whole story, we realize even those moments that seemed chaotic, even those moments that seemed dark, even those moments that seemed to be full of despair, that God's grace and God's love and God's power were present. And I want us to pay attention to that because uh, I'll, I'll be real with you. I think there's a lot of Christians who have been sold this view of Christianity that if you're a good person and you go to church and you tithe and you serve and you read the Bible, that good things are going to happen to you. And listen to me on this because I, I don't want you to hear that no good things will happen to you. Good things will occur, but they're the spiritual kind of things. They're not the earthly kind of things. See, when we hear God talk about abundance, when we talk about God overflowing our cup, when we talk about God blessing us, we can't help but as creatures of the world to translate that into what we picture from a worldly perspective. When we talk about worldly abundance, we think about money. We think about fame, we think about materialism, we think about popularity, we think about the things that this world glorifies. We don't tend to think about peace. We don't tend to think about faithfulness or gentleness. We don't tend to think about having a purpose in life. We think about these worldly things. And unfortunately, what you've seen over the last 50 years is you've seen people who take the beautiful spiritual promises that are in God's word and then they change out what those are about to make a match up with worldly blessings. 
And this is where we get this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's become so popular that tries to tell you that if you're just faithful enough, you'll be successful. That God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be popular. God wants you to be famous. God wants you to be beautiful. I mean, realize, no, that's in Scripture. If you ever really want to know what being a great Christian looks like, just look at Jesus. Did Jesus die rich, famous, and popular? No. He did not. And that's the path we follow. And so again, my hope for you guys is I want us to be realistic in that, yes, what we get from God is beautiful. And I think if you've ever actually experienced it, you would trade everything this world could ever offer you for what he can give you. One of my favorite pastors has always said, I would rather be a, a servant in the kingdom of God than a king here on earth. Amen. Let me be the janitor in heaven rather than a king here on earth. Just let me be in that kingdom. I don't care what job I got to do. I don't care how low the position is. If I can be in his kingdom, that's awesome. That's everything. That's what I want. It's why people who don't understand God and haven't met him look at us who are like, yes, I'm a disciple. I'm a slave of God. And go, why would you want that? Oh, because you don't know who he is. See, if you knew who he was, if you knew how he loved, if you knew the power and the grace and the majesty and the forgiveness that he offers, you'd understand why I want to be a slave in his house. Because it's beautiful. And so as we go through this story, I want us to fully acknowledge that God is revealing to us very honestly that, yes, sometimes really bad things happen to really good people. But that's not an excuse for those good people to start behaving badly. The circumstances of life do not dictate who you are. You know when we talk every Sunday and I say that God has given you a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline? That power I'm talking about is not the kind of power where you can walk into a room and beat everybody up. It's the kind of power where you can stand in the midst of the world and all the world can tell you something is wrong and you go, no, it's not. It's the kind of power where everybody in the world can look at you and call you a loser or a wimp or a weirdo and you can go, I'm a child of God. It's the kind of power that says, I know who I am in the eyes of the one that made me. And there is no circumstance, there is no word, there is no pressure from this world that surrounds me that can make me anything other than that. Amen. That's the power we're talking about. And when you meet people of power like Joseph, like that, what you realize is the world can do its worst. They do not change. They don't change. It's funny, recently I was talking to Tyler about mean kids at school and how mean kids make you want to act different. And I told him, don't ever let people make you what you're not. That's really when you lose. When you really lose is not when people oppress you. It's not when people push you down. It's not even if they beat you up. It's when you let their actions make you behave in a way that you know is not you. That's when you lose. And so we're going to see this man stand against the circumstances of the world 
and see him be who God has made him to be. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me. We're in Genesis chapter 39. And in Genesis chapter 39, we are going to catch up to where Joseph is. Now, while you're flipping there, let me remind you of where we've been in Joseph's story. Joseph's story starts with him being the favored son of a rich family. He is loved more than any of the other siblings. He has the best job. He has the best clothes. He is honored. He is loved. He is respected by his father. But because of the bad parenting that occurs, because favoritism is put upon him, a huge rift develops between him and his older brothers to the point that they despise him, they hate him. And they finally set their sights on killing him. After thinking about it for a bit, they realize that might be a little harsh. And so their decision is, we won't kill him, but we'll sell him to foreign slave traders and he'll be gone to us. And so this young man who has only known wealth, who has only known favor, who has only known the protection of his family, who has only known people who know the ways of God, suddenly finds himself in Egypt in a culture that doesn't treat him as a human being, where he is a slave, where no one believes in his God, no one behaves like he behaves, and he's all alone. But to his credit, he doesn't give up. In fact, what we're told is, is that he behaves in such a way that it's obvious to anybody who knows him that he loves God and that God, Yahweh, blesses everything he does. And so he's a, though he's a slave, he rises up to a position of prominence. Potiphar is, is one of the trusted advisors of the Pharaoh. So Potiphar is a man of wealth, a man of privilege, and a man with a huge estate. And over time, probably years, Potiphar begins to trust Joseph so much that he literally runs nothing in his house. Joseph manages the servants. He manages all the workers. He manages how the food is taken care of. He manages his wealth. Every ounce of power this man has has been laid in Joseph's hand to take care of. Scripture tells us the only thing that Potiphar concerns himself with is the food that he eats. Joseph takes care of everything else. And so, well, yes, he has fallen from a favored son of a rich man to a slave. He has risen back up to at least somebody of prominence within that household. But what happens? Potiphar's wife starts taking a liking to him, decides she wants to have him. And Potiphar bravely and boldly stands and goes, I could never do this to Potiphar, and more importantly, I could never do this to God. You are tempting me with sin, but what you don't realize is the sin that you are offering is you're asking me to be separated from my father. That's not going to happen. There's nothing that you could offer that would want me to leave my father to come to you. But this woman won't give up. Won't give up. And so finally, one day he enters the house and he sees basically a trap's been set. All the other workers have been sent away. There are no witnesses. And she goes after him physically. He, being smart, runs. He realizes he's facing a level of temptation that there's no talking here. He realizes the best thing to do is get out. But unfortunately, he leaves his cloak, and where we catch up in Genesis 39, verse 19, is the aftermath 
of this attempt. It says, then she arose, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 39. It says, now when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger, this is Potiphar, burned. And so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So big, two big things happen. One, Joseph, wrongly convicted, wrongly goes to jail. And this is the moments when you're reading scripture where you need to really think about the story that's being told you. This is only a few sentences. And in fact, there's only one that really reflects on the fact that he ends up in jail. But imagine for Joseph if that was a one-sentence moment in his life. Can you imagine the emotions he felt? Right, betrayed by his family, sent to a foreign land, potentially up for death in Egypt if he does anything wrong, slowly, patiently, conscientiously, and faithfully, he works himself back to where? A position of power. Yeah, he's still a slave, but at least he's respected. At least he has some authority. At least he has an ability to do some things in this world. He works to get there. He feels like he's earned that. He deserves that. He's fought for that. And then what happens? Another travesty. Just like before, the ill intent of other people, not tied to his actions, not tied to his behaviors. He didn't even sleep with the woman. He resisted. He did what was right. And how is he rewarded? To end up in jail. And let's remember, what he was holding on to wasn't what he originally had. This wasn't him originally being the favored son of a wealthy man. He was just trying to hold on to being a respected slave. That's it. And what happens? He loses that. Now, why am I hampering on this? Because, brothers and sisters, this is what we do in life. How many times have we been in those shoes and had those moments happen and we don't move past it? How many times have we sat there yelling at him because it's not fair what's happened? I'm the one that worked hard. I'm the one that came in early. I'm the one that stayed late. I'm the one that came up with the good ideas. And they get the promotion? Are you kidding me? Well, I worked 30 years here and you cut my department? I'm the one that has to go find new work? Why? How many times do we see injustice hit our lives? Sometimes small, sometimes big. And it's never just once. It's over and over and over and over again. The reason that this is only one sentence in Scripture is because spiritually that's how Joseph addressed it. And I want you to pay attention to this because I honestly believe the culture you're being groomed in right now, and especially the culture you're being groomed in, but more importantly, the one those kids are being groomed in, 
is a culture that creates victims. Everywhere you look, we are making excuses for people not to succeed. Everywhere you look, anytime somebody doesn't get what they think is fair or right or deserved, it's not their fault. It's somebody else's. And to be honest, sometimes it is somebody else's fault. But that doesn't give you an excuse to stop working, to stop striving, to stop doing the work that your Lord has asked you to do. I don't know why we've got this impression that the world's fair. I mean, I don't know about you. Have any of your experiences in the world taught you that the world is fair? Have anywhere you've gone, have you seen it be fair how people treat other human beings? No. And we see it everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. If you're famous in this country, do you know what's really unfair? The more wealthy you become, the less stuff you actually have to buy. Have you ever noticed that? Right? The celebrities with millions of dollars get free cars. Because the car company wants the rich person to drive their car. And you're like, how does that work? This guy could buy the whole car lot, but doesn't have to pay for one. Right? Have you ever watched like maybe a World Series game and seen a celebrity sitting in a great seat or even get asked to come up to the booth? You and I couldn't even get tickets, but because this person didn't stop pretending at five, year old, five years old when everybody else did, they get to go commentate on the game. Why? Because that's the world we live in. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is not that the emotion that surrounds these moments of injustice is little, but the response to it should be. In the sense that what you and I should do is just like Joseph go, well, here we go. I'm going to keep doing what I do. I'm going to keep striving like I do. And you notice, what happens? Right, when he showed up to Potiphar's house, what did everybody say about him? Everything he does, the Lord blesses. He ends up in jail, and what immediately starts to happen? The warden goes, man, everything this guy does, the Lord blesses. What does it tell you? It tells you that Joseph, wherever he is, he does the same things. He behaves the same way. He acts the same way. He displays the same faith. Well, the world is a roller coaster. His faith is not. It keeps moving closer to God. And that's what we need. We need a church full of people who are not on the roller coaster of life and showing immense faith at the peaks and showing unbelievable stress, worry, and depression and lack of faith in the low moments. I'm not saying you can't have emotion. Everybody has emotion. In fact, God embraces emotion. Go read the book of Psalms and tell me that emotion isn't just pouring forth from those words. But what God's saying is, in the midst of that emotion, still keep your faith. Still do what you're supposed to do. What we constantly see with Joseph is there's this strong relationship between him and God. Look what it says again. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of his chief jailer. Has God abandoned Joseph? No. no. God is working on things. God has a plan. God has a reason for everything that's occurring. You and I always don't see it. You and I always don't get it. But it's happening. 
And God is right there with Joseph, extending kindness, positioning him, protecting him, and watching over him. And Joseph goes, as long as that's true, I'm good. As long as that's true, I'm good. My question to you, is that you? Do you all have the power? Do I have the power? That whether you put me in the green pastures or whether you put me in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm still standing by my Lord. I'm still standing by my shepherd. I'm still praising his name, singing his glories, and trying to be as close to him as I possibly can. Or are you one of those people that only in the good times do people want to be around you? Have you ever noticed how that can change certain people? Most people, even jerks, normally if everything's going good, they're tolerable. It's the rare person when the whole world's falling apart around them that they're still a blessing to be around. That's really what God's calling us to be. That's why he always talks about being light in the midst of darkness, about being that light that the darkness cannot overcome. God never promised that your light would be surrounded by other light. In fact, he tells you often, your light will be taken and be put in the darkest of places. And what I will ask you to do in that moment is still shine. Still shine. Still show people the faith that you have in God. Still show people that you have a consistent character. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is consistent character is about a consistent relationship with God. A consistent character, if you want to be a person who is the same day in and day out, who shows the same abilities, the same talents, the same spirit, then the number one focus is your relationship with him. And to be honest with you guys, this is where a lot of people get messed up. A lot of people are chasing the blessings of God and not God. They want patience, they want peace, they want kindness, they want faithfulness, they want gentleness, they want a good family, they want good finances, they want, you name it, fill in the blank, I want this, and you think God can give it to you, so you do whatever you need to to get the thing. But that's what you want, is the thing. You don't want him. And what the whole scripture is revealing to you is the only thing you need is him. If you just chase him, he'll take care of what you need. Make your passion not to have his fruits. Make your passion not to have his stuff. Make your passion to have him. And he will give you everything else. He will provide you exactly what you need. And so the question is not what's happening to you. It's what are you doing to get closer to the Lord. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, this is about baby steps. So I always tell you guys, there's no small things. There's no such thing as small things. Most great change occurs in baby steps, both good and bad. Right? I didn't wake up and suddenly gain 60 pounds. Right? I didn't just wake up and I'm like, whoa, what happened to 200? That's crazy. I guess that whopper went right to my waist. Yeah. Right? And the same thing, I can't go work out for 30 minutes today and wake up tomorrow and look like Thor. That's not going to happen. <laughs> right? I'm going to work out, and I'll be like a quarter of a pound lighter tomorrow. And I have to have faith that 
if I keep stacking those days up, eventually I'll wake up and look a little different. But it'll take time. It'll take patience. It'll take commitment. You are not suddenly going to turn into a person of unbelievable patience and faith. It will happen slowly, day by day. Baby steps closer. Baby steps deeper into the word. If you ever want to hear this, go talk to Joe about his story. For most of Joe's life, if you would have told him he would have been a pastor of a Baptist church, I think he would have laughed at you and so would have his family. And at most points in his journey, he never actually thought about being a pastor. It was just baby step after baby step after baby step after baby step after baby step. And one day he woke up and went, I think I'm going to be a pastor. How'd that happen? He was chasing God. And God had a direction for him. The same is true of you. It's about this consistent character, no matter the circumstances that are around you. Flip your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is a beautiful book about how you and I need to face trials. And and brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, if you haven't gotten into the Word, to just pay attention to how much Scripture is about suffering and trials. There's a reason for that. Right? If there's a bunch of things covered in the Bible that are all about suffering and trials, it's probably because God's warning you. There might be some tough times you're going to face. Right? That's not there for no reason. And in James chapter 1, we have this beautiful book about trials. And it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to the glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and it withers the grass, and its flowers falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who preserves under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What is James saying? He's saying, hey, one, your goal should not be to have a comfortable life. Your goal should be a powerful instrument in the hands of God. And really, I want you to search your soul on that. If you were to really be asked by God, I can give you a comfortable life, or I can use you to do great things in my kingdom, but it'll be hard. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? One of my favorite quotes is actually not from a Christian. It's from Bruce Lee. He always said, do not pray to have an easy life. Pray to have the strength to live through a difficult one. Your goal should not be to be comfortable. It should be used by God. 
I mean, how we should all view ourselves is, is, is instruments and tools. Right? Like, if a mechanic shows up at my house and his tool bag is perfectly clean and his tools look like they've never been used, that terrifies me. Because he probably doesn't know how to use them. But if he shows up and that bag is worn and the hammer is chipped and it looks like those tools have been used, you know what that tells me? This guy knows what he's doing. Those tools have been used. I always love when I moved to Texas because before I moved to Texas, right, when you're in the north, you see pickup trucks. But normally you see pickup trucks for people who need pickup trucks. So typically it's a construction worker or farmhand or, or someone who needs a truck with 4x4. Suddenly you get to Texas and all of a sudden you see soccer moms picking up groceries in a F-250 with dually wheels and you're going, why do you need that? Have you ever used that truck to haul anything other than your kids and groceries? No, but it's Texas, so we need that. That's how that works. Please don't be that truck. I don't want you to be the spotless F-250. I want you to be the one that has scratches all across its paint, that has mud all around it, that clearly has been used and banged up and done some mighty things in its time. That should be our prayer. That should be our prayer. And so James is saying, if that's your goal, you kind of like times of trial. Not because they're the easiest, but here's what you know. I'm probably being used by God right now. It's probably in this moment that I'm going to get used. It's probably in this moment that I have a chance to win one of my greatest victories. It's probably in this moment that I have a chance to achieve one of those things that on my deathbed, thinking about how God has used me, I will remember this time. And I will remember how we came through this. You know, isn't it funny when you, you talk to people about their legacies, how few good times you talk about? Right, because guess what? It doesn't take skill to navigate peace. It doesn't take skill to sit on your couch and watch a football game. But it does take skill to navigate the tough times. It takes faith. And that's what God is encouraging us, is to remember that. In Matthew chapter 16, it says this. This is Christ to his disciples. Please just listen to this. For all of those who give you the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, if you ever want to know why it's just a bunch of bunk, read this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Christ said, if you follow me, don't expect to have the things of this world. If you want the things of the world, go somewhere else. It's why regularly you would have these moments with Jesus where he would see so many people showing up and he'd be like, eh, we need to set this straight. If I'm becoming popular, you're not listening. What I preach is not popular. The path is not wide, it is narrow. If you've come here to be entertained, if you've come here to see miracles, then you are here for the very wrong thing. I am not coming here to give you life. I am coming here for you to deny your life and take up a new one. I'm not coming here to make you a king. I'm coming here to make you a servant. But if you understand the kingdom I have, if you understand the life I want to give you, 
then you will be joyous in that. We are not here to elevate ourselves. We are here to serve Him. And in that service, we realize there are high points and there are low. But our soul is always soaring. Always. That's the goal. Flip with me to Psalm 23. I know you've heard this one many times before, but to me it is just always the most beautiful, not because of the peace it prescribes, but because of the relationship that it describes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You notice it starts with the relationship. It, it doesn't say, the Lord has given me this and, this and this and this and this and this and this. The Lord has given me everything I could want, so I don't have any wants. No, it says, the Lord's my shepherd. Because he's my shepherd, because I'm his, I have no wants. I have him. That's my only want. I have him, and because of that, I have no other wants. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. So people love that top part, Right? Quiet waters, green grass, righteous paths. That's what I want. That's what I'm following in him too. But it doesn't stop there. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. See, in the first half, you could start to convince yourself that the reason this person is rejoicing, the reason they're singing a song is because they're in a great place. But in the second half, what's revealed to you is they're not singing because of where they're at. They're singing because of who they're with. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So yeah, there's enemies all around and danger is right at my feet, but you're next to me. And you have the power to take care of it. I know dad's got this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. I love that picture. I love that part more than the first part. Because in that part, what he's saying is, you're in the deepest, darkest, ugliest, and scariest place. And as you look around you, all you see is your enemies that want your head. You're in a scary place surrounded by scary people. And what does the Lord say? I prepared a meal for you. Sit down. In the midst of death, in the midst of hate, in the midst of darkness, sit down and eat because I got this. Your cup will overflow while I stand over you. You will feast while my rod and my staff comfort you. The point isn't where you're at, it's who you're with. That's the journey of a disciple. Who are you with? Not where you're at. And what David says is he knows this. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The promise is, God, if I'm with you, it's all good. 
if I'm with you, it's all good. And that's what Joseph shows. Whether he is the favorite son in his father's house, whether he is a slave in the house of Potiphar, or whether he is a prisoner in jail, wrongly accused, it doesn't matter because he's with God. And he loves God, and he has faith in God, and he knows that the setting doesn't define him. That relationship defines him. That's the key. What defines you? Is it what surrounds you? Or is it your father who made you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the love that you have provided us. Father, I hope that you will remind each and every one of us that today our pursuits are not about things. They're not about blessings. They're not about gifts. They're about you. That the deepest desire of our heart, Lord, should be nothing other than to be in your presence. For Father, it is when we are in your presence that we find everything we need. It is in you, Lord, that we find our love and our peace and our power and our comfort. And so, Father, today may we take steps closer into your presence. Father, we love you. We cherish you. And in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As Maria comes up to sing, uh, I and the deacons will be down at the front or in the back. And just if there's anything on your heart that you wish somebody else was praying for, I encourage you to come forth and pray with us. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable praying during service, walking the aisle, I know that can be intimidating, please seek us out afterwards. We are always here to help you along your journey with God. Let's all stand. i
Today we uh, take the Lord's Supper, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, brothers and sisters, I remind you as uh, the deacons are coming forward that when we take this, remember what we're doing. This is not about a tasty wafer or grape juice. This is about us proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is about us proclaiming that because he loved us so much that he came to this earth not only to live for us, but to die for us, and in so doing, defeated death and wiped away our sins if we're willing to follow Him. Scripture reminds us of a few instructions when it comes to the Lord's Supper. First, because we are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, it is for believers only. And so we ask that if you're not a believer, that you don't partake. Second, 
He instructs us that because we love God and love people, that we want to make sure we're right with Him and right with other Christians. So if there are sins that we have yet to repent from, sins that we have yet to give over to the Lord, we should make that our priority before taking the Lord's Supper. And second, if there are a brother or sister in faith who has asked for our forgiveness and we have been refusing to give it to him, that we should also abstain from taking the bread and the cup and focus first on getting those relationships right. We want to know that when we come to this table, though we will never be perfect, that we have acknowledged our sins and that we're right with God and we're right with our brothers and sisters. Let's pray over the bread. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you will bless those who partake in this bread, being reminded, Lord, that it represents the body of your Son, Jesus, who came to this earth to bear the weight of all our sins. The Father, it was his body that was broken under a punishment that was deserved for us. But because he loved us, Lord, he was willing to joyfully sacrifice for us. Father, we take this to remember that sacrifice and to glorify his greatness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Mark 14, it says, While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. As a family, let us eat. It says then, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this cup. This cup that reminds us of the blood of Jesus, Lord. 
the blood that has washed us clean of our sins, and not only washes away our sins, Lord, but covers us with his righteousness. A righteousness, Lord, that shows that we are adopted into your family, that we are your children, and that as long as you are our Lord and we are your servant, we have a place in your home forever. Father, we love you. We cherish you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As a family, let us drink. In Scripture, it tells us that after they had taken the Lord's Supper, before they went to the garden to pray, that they sung a hymn together. And so I ask you to please stand with us as we sing a closing hymn. I'm going to sing, Be Strong, O Lord. Be strong, be strong, be strong in the Lord, and be of good courage, for He is your guide. Be strong, be strong, be strong in the Lord, and rejoice for the God's people said? Amen. All right, I'll remind you a couple things. So again, tonight from 5 to 9, we will have a viewing for Isaac's father here at the church. Tomorrow, the funeral services will start at 10 a.m., but if you can bring food or anything, we will be here as early as 8.30. 
And then please remember Wednesday, we have our important business meeting at seven o'clock. So members, if you could be here for that, we would greatly appreciate it. I love you all. Have a great week and may God bless you greatly.